Hello, you are now listening to The Arts Report, broadcasting from the unceded Musqueam territory of UBC campus. And if you ever wanted to hear what our theme sounds like merged with a Black Keezy song called Death Insurance, well, you know now. It's actually, I'm actually, actually kind of enjoying that. Um, but uh, this is actually kind of lovely. Joining us in studio today are the transitions, right? Are three lovely people from MOA's new exhibit, Arts of Resistance. Um, this is, and please introduce yourselves to our audience. So my name is Laura Zorio Sonnex, and I'm the curator of Arts of Resistance. Excellent. Um, my name is Cody Rocco, and I am the graphic designer for the exhibit. And I'm Skooker Broom. I'm the exhibit designer. Now, all of you guys have a different, probably have a different perspective on the material, but you've all come together to create it. Can you guys sort of all unpack the exhibit in your words? Like, what, what of your experience has gone into it? Mm, let's start with you. Yeah, okay. I mean, um, so the idea for the exhibition came from my research. So I'm an archaeologist, and I wanted to explore the ways that contemporary communities in Latin America use the past, use archaeological material, historical material, and make it relevant. Um, so what I was really interested in doing is not just showing culture and cultural continuity and ideas about the past, but really bring it into something very contemporary, which is uh, the political context in Latin America. So that was, that was the idea for the show. Um, and of course, as you can imagine, uh, it's a lot of really sort of beautiful, visually appealing material and a lot of very sort of dark stories. And that's where I needed a lot of help because it was going to be difficult to materialize an idea like that in the space. And that's where Skuka and Cody have uh, been incredibly masterful. So. But prior to that, you had a lot of field work that you did. Maybe you can talk about that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so um, most of the objects that will be on display in the exhibition have been uh, commissioned and acquired specifically for the show um, and for MOA's Latin America collection. And so I spent um, almost an entire year going back and forward between Guatemala, Mexico, and Peru, picking up um, and commissioning pieces. Uh, so it meant, obviously, a lot of work with what we call source communities, so communities uh, who make the objects that eventually go into the collections. Um, and a lot of the perspectives that are brought into the show and the ideas and the stories do come from the people who, who make the objects. Fascinating. Yeah. And so. for Cody, would you have anything to add to that visually? Oh, <laughs> absolutely. So we were... <clears throat> Our design process was um, informed mostly on Laura's research, and we were very interested on the places that she went and the environments that she encountered and the people that she encountered. Um, when you think of Latin America, you think of warm, lively cultures, um, which is which you see in the show. Every, there's every color under the sun under there. It's, it's very fun, um, but the stories that are being told have a darker undercurrent and that's where the tension in the whole show comes from is you see one thing but you're understanding a completely different reality i'll bet like there's some what's one of the situations that particularly stood out to you like one of these striking situations that's very evocative of what you're trying to convey uh in terms of the objects you mean in terms of the yeah. stories of the objects yeah um so for example there is one set of objects that are from a town called Teloloapan in Guerrero, which is one of the uh, poorest and most federally, federally neglected parts of Mexico. Can we hear the name again? Sorry, it's in Guerrero. It's, it's in called Teloloapan in the state of Guerrero. Oh, okay. And it, they're objects that are from a devil carnival 
which is a devil festival that takes place in September. They have a lot of awesome holidays. <laughs> yeah. Especially <laughs> around very terrifying concepts. Well, that's an interesting point that you just raised because uh. although the, tev- the devil might seem terrifying to us, the devil is actually a much more sympathetic figure in Latin American culture. Partly because mm. when, uh, at the time of the Spanish conquest, in the 15th and 16th century, the devil was equated with pre-Hispanic uh, mythology and pre-Hispanic uh, creations and stories and religion. So you can imagine that, I mean, that's one reason, but there are lots of reasons why the identity of the devil over the centuries has actually evolved and is now a very satirical figure uh, and a very sympathetic figure. They wrapped him up with Quetzalcoatl and Tlaloc. For and, example. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. There you go. You know a lot about pre-Hispanic <laughs> Mesoamerican culture. It's, it's a little, I, I had a book on um, Aztecs, Aztec, the Aztec, the Inca, and the Maya when I was growing up. So that was very interesting oh, uh, to me. And it's, 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 a, it's a gruesome story, you know, with the Spanish and what have you, especially with uh, Pizarro and the Incas. But, Absolutely. You know, that's it's part of it. And it's a in many ways, well, you could say this in most New World cultures, but there's this unfor- this terrifying history of of bloodshed. And how has that evolved, would you say? What, what sort of representations mm. of that? Right, that's a really good question. So, interestingly, the devil uh, objects that I was going to talk about are an example of, as you say, the kind of bloodshed and oppression that uh, the legacies of which Latin America is still dealing with. Uh, and there are sort of, se- there is a sense of process and colonial stress that comes from 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 that time but actually most of the pieces in the exhibition are not so much about uh sort of the the conquest by the spanish uh or by europe as much as they are about contemporary political problems and those contemporary political problems are uh yes they have an international basis uh they are they could be called neo-colonial uh, but they are specific to different localities. With like William, with like sort of the legacy of William Walker, right, and the yeah. others, yeah. Well, I mean, what I was going to say is, for example, uh, drug cartels at the moment in Mexico, probably oh, uh, one of the biggest problems um, in terms of disappearances and deaths, uh, femicide, uh, and uh, the objects that we bought from Teloloapan were brought into the museum very late, and that posed a problem for uh, design, um, my design colleagues and my, my collection colleagues. And the reason that they were delayed in Teloloapan is because there had been some, uh, some violence uh, and some altercation between the people in the community and the local uh, state and the local police. And so there were no art handlers or shippers going into that uh, village to pick up the objects. Delayed on account of murder? Delayed on account of murder. That's uh, it's quite a thing when you handle that there, and the 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 extent of these stories. How do how do you go about? I I suppose you've already touched on this a little bit, but what kind of organizational principle sort of united these? What sort of trajectory are you aiming for? In terms of the objects, or in terms of the design? Mm. Either one. Well, why don't you talk a little bit about the design there, if you like, Skika? <clears throat> well, what we started um, our process is often to. Uh, unpack the sensibilities that the curator has and what they've they've learned, and try to uh, bring that into uh, a world of a visual world for us. So we start with the moods, a mood board, and a sensibility of what um, the space might be and what the the the, uh, the possibilities are through words and, and pictures. And one of the things that that came first, which Laura brought forward, and correct me, is it the as asmo the the the, con- the concept of wind and movement? Uh, the Olin. The Olin, that's right. Mm. And so the Olin became a, a, 
a uh, principle f by which we were looking at wayfinding how we could actually uh, break this, the sections up into five different sections. So um, with that became uh, a sense of movement through the space based on Olin, based on the concept of wind, movement change, I believe is the That's other right. interpretation. Yeah, yeah. Literally the winds of change. Yeah. And with that, mood words also started to come up as we, we started to brainstorm, and we ended up with the mood words of uh, tension, tension struggle. struggle, and craft. Crafted. Crafted, and that's correct. Sorry <clears throat> and about that there. We only have three microphones. <laughs> <laughs> so those mood, those mood words help us try to understand how we are going to make choices as we go through. So tension became a very important word for us as we tried to struggle with how to show struggle. Mm -hmm. um, and the tension came through not only the stories that Laura's telling, but the objects themselves, and they're not all necessarily uh, conflict-looking objects. And so the devil's costumes are actually quite elegant and sequined and uh, uh, celebratory as opposed to um, scary. Uh, scary or, or remorse or anything yeah. like that. So. so what's the relation then with, with tension and then the actual presence of violence there? Because that seems to, like, tension mm. involves the possibility of violence, but there's also, with these cheerful devil costumes, these intimations of life that you have to live around it. Like, what's a characteristic... Uh, continuum there, I suppose. So that's where the word resistance comes in, right? Mm -hmm. um, because the the objects and the and the festivals that the devil costumes are part of are about the ways that people tell their own stories or perform their own stories, uh, in spite of uh, the fact that their histories or their version of history is often uh, suppressed. So it's this sense that. Uh, you might not necessarily call it, you know, jolly or happy, but it's certainly a type. I hope not. Yeah, <laughs> you would call it a sense of, uh, what's the word? Um, therapy, I think. that It's, it's mm. art and performance mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's therapy for people. And, and, sorry, and protest yeah. as well. I wonder if you can Excellent. mention the codex. I think that's a pinnacle piece around Mayan codexes. So, so not a Maya codex. Mm. It's that it's a it's a contemporary codex. It was made in 2014 following the disappearance of 43 students uh, in Ayotzinapa. Uh, the contemporary codex lifts images from the colonial era codices, the Codice Mendoza and the Codice de Aperramiento. Those are fascinating documents. They are indeed. They really are, and the, and you and the images are so appealing. I think that that's sort of. In a way, that's uh, one of the reasons that uh, Mexican art is has become so popular even outside of the country is because there's this really forceful sort of relationship between European styles of artwork and uh, pre-Hispanic uh, symbols that sort of came together and produced these these wonderful uh, books. Uh, so, in any case, um, the the Codex. So yeah, uses pre-Hispanic iconography, but it tells a contemporary story. And so there's a forced link there between uh, pre-Hispanic Mesoamerica and indigenous empowerment. Uh, and I think that uh, that strategic link is maybe questionable. Uh, it's uh, there's certainly not um, a direct link between anybody 500 years ago and someone today. But as Skuka says, it's a piece of artwork that provides... Uh, a space for discourse uh, and also can be used um, in activism. And that's one of the things that I think is uh, really wonderful about what Skuka did with the piece because I was think I think of it as a codex, so I was thinking of it as something that could have been rolled out and people could look at it 
like they look at the pre-Hispanic codices in the Museo Nacional de Antropología, or they look at them at the British Museum. Mm. Uh, whereas Kuka said, well, no, hang on a minute, this codex was actually made for demonstrations in Mexico City, mm-hmm. and it was held up by the families. And walked through the streets. And walked through the streets, so... So we des- developed a mount where it actually is vertically held and curved as if uh, the crowd is actually walking through the streets, and holding it. Really? And it's okay. eight and a half meters long. So it's a very large object, 20, uh, half a meter tall and eight and a half meters long. Now, there's something that, uh, that kind of comes to mind here is that Luis Benuel, when he was talking about Mexico, because he was Spanish, but he lived in Mexico for most of his later life, probably about half his life. He said that Mexico is has is one of, is should ha, has one of the most enlightened constitutions in the world, but that it's that it's a state of such suspended corruption that the only thing tempering the absolute force of government is the absolute force of pragmatism, and that sort of mixture of this brutal reality, but also this intense capacity for fantasy, and mm-hmm. I, some uh, idealism maybe a bit of a loaded term, is. Described, I think, by him, the intimation was that that there's the connection to surrealism and magical realism. Mm -hmm. And do you guys explore that in the exhibit? Is there any sort of links to that magical realist tradition that sort of permeates Latin American media? Uh, No, actually. Interestingly, I think surrealism is one of the aspects of Latin American culture that is not visible in the exhibition and actually that was a strategic choice on my part there's also there are also very few apart from the devil that I mentioned uh, there are very few references to religion in Latin America and the reason I chose to exclude both elements not that they're not both fascinating because they are is because this is commonly how Latin American art and culture are represented I mean as Luis Buñuel did and many French philosophers and the the travellers and the early intellectuals that spent time in Mexico in in the 18th sorry 20th century a couple of centuries off Um, and so um, that's what people receive that's what people listen to a long time and that sort of goes back to what Cody was saying we think about Latin America as being very warm as being very joyful uh, colourful festive uh, and then of course there's always been this sense of of, of tension hasn't there because or that's on that because there's a violence that's that's all because uh, there's chaos right Uh, this sense of something which is completely sort of uh, vibrant in, you know, but in a context which is actually very precarious. And although that's, I'm not saying that that's necessarily untrue, I just think it was really interesting in this context to look at indigenous, rural, marginalised people's artworks and see how they represented themselves. And it's very different from the way that Europeans have imagined and described Latin America and Mexico. Now, I have a really specific question here, and this may be a little bit of an odd one, but it's about sort of the evolution of pop culture in Latin America, because Pablo Escobar was a comic publisher, and that was what mm-hmm. he wrote on his taxes. You know, <laughs> the comics were all starring him. Yeah. <laughs> when, when you're rich enough to feel, fill plane wheels with cocaine, you can have people draw you all day. <laughs> Apparently, that I heard the stories that he would just drop into the studio, tell them some random story, and leave, and then they'd have to draw it as a comic. And if they did, well, sadism. Yeah. <laughs> well, like they, they got a mural of him right in yeah. Medellin, and uh, in in like in I think Baja, I don't know, in in parts of northern Mexico, the cartels own recording studios for Nacocoribas, right? Mm-hmm. The ballads about how great it is to deal drugs because those are the money laundering fronts. Which I don't know why you launder money through that. That <laughs> that, that, that would be like actually no, that's not a good example. I'd be thinking like because there's um. One of the, I was, I was going to use Suge Knight as an example, but he's actually been in jail. <laughs> he's been sent to prison a couple times. So, but uh, like, there's this 
very dark criminal and very pervasive problem with organized crime. And how does that, what, is, what reflects that in terms of not just the, the overarching culture, but the pop culture, what is being produced right now? Uh, right, so that's a good question. Uh, I feel like what one of the things that I'm consistently shocked by in Latin America when I do go to places which are obviously suffering under stress from uh, drug violence, drug-related violence, is that most people don't want to talk about it. And I'm, I'm not a journalist, I'm not a politician, I'm not a documentary maker, uh, I'm an archaeologist, and I'm buying artworks and leaving and even that, even then, people are silent on the subject. And I think that that speaks to uh, fear. Um, I think it speaks to uh, a sense of disempowerment. And I think it means that popular culture, often popular culture, popular art, and the contemporary political context are, there's a disjuncture between them, there's a, there's a gap between them, and uh, that, political context isn't necessarily coming through in the popular arts and that's something I wanted to explore which is what the exhibition does in some cases it's clear that there's activism going in the art like the Ayotzinapa Codex that Skuka was talking about in other cases uh, it really isn't well this is defensive maze maybe talk about the that conflict which is actually an environmental yeah that's a different yeah it's a different kind of art and activism mm -hmm. yeah so there's um another there's a art collective that we've invited again from Mexico, from Oaxaca. By the way, Mexico isn't the only country that's being represented in the, in the exhibition. There are a few. Um, but, but because of my research, uh, obviously, there's, there's been a little bit of a, uh, a lean. Uh, but no, so they're, it's, uh, called, they're called La Pistola. They're from Oaxaca. And their collective... Pretty aggressive branding right there. Yeah, mm. <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. It, it's actually... Um, spelt L-I-L-A-P-I-Z-T-O-L-A -L -L -A. so it's two words lapis which is pencil and pistola gun so yeah <laughs> I just oh, that, that's that's a nice pun I like that mm, it's good isn't it yeah so yeah so their artwork is about uh, genetically modified uh, maze that's um and, oh sorry no I just reminded me that Picasso's first word was bees bees for, for <laughs> lapis for pencil <laughs> No, that's, uh, that has nothing to do with anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it was a nice anecdote, though, uh, which is what this is all about, anyway. Um, but no, so they basically make graffiti, and they made graffiti on the walls of Oaxaca during an uprising in 2006 in which, uh, basically, people in a peaceable uh, teacher strike actually took power of the city and got rid of the state authorities and started to draw put graffiti on the walls. Now that you mentioned peaceable teachers strike, there is an anec another anecdote from Luis Benuel about a friend of his going to a teachers conference and it's really hot and they <laughs> take off their jackets and everyone's carrying a pistol. <laughs> and then he's standing beside the, he's the only guy unarmed. He's like, he's Spanish. He's like, good Lord, are we the only two unarmed here? And the school superintendent beside him, nope. Pulls off his coat, 45 at his side. <laughs> so, so peaceable teachers strike. I'm just picturing those same teachers just standing there, white shirts, like... Very peaceable. Please evacuate the building. Um, well, uh, I wasn't there, but I'm, I have it under good authority that they weren't gun-toting. I imagine. Uh, but speaking of peace, there's also the Peruvian artists here, and they have a piece, or, or making a mural, that is about healing. Process. That's right. Yeah, that's that's a piece that has absolutely nothing, uh, ostensibly has nothing to do with activism, has nothing to do with struggle even. The whole artwork is a design which is about ancestral knowledge and it's about healing, uh, it's about peace and therapy through artwork. 
and uh, it's almost the resolution of the show because it's the very last. Uh, Skooka chose it. And maybe you want to talk a little bit about this because you 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 put you you sort of made it into a room like space, didn't you? Well, we we it's actually the only space within the place uh, with the spaces divided into five sections that you have to. Uh, Exit the same way you came in. So mm-hmm. we have we have uh, other places where you can you can uh, exhaust yourself out of different locations within the space. But in this piece of healing, you actually have to come in and leave in the same way. And it's a contemplative space, and it's meant to be more uh, to consider everything that you've seen and find some harmony. Absolutely. I mean, the women who painted this mural, they are, they're from the Shipibo-Konibo diaspora in Lima, mm-hmm. and they sing while they paint. The design is not just visual, it's also oral. So they've been singing their ancestral knowledge and strength into the lines, into the design on the wall. And when people go into the exhibition, they'll be able to sit on a bench and listen to the design and look at the design at the same time. Sort of a, the original multimedia experience. Totally. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It seems almost like a tapestry in that way. Yeah, yeah I'm so. going to go with ayahuasca or mm-hmm. um, powerful, okay. <laughs> powerful plants because it's, they're a multisensory experience. Yeah? Exactly. And they're also healing. So they're healing plants and, yes. it's, and, they're, and it's healing art. Uh, a friend of mine uh, has recorded Greek tragedy on ayahuasca, and apparently it's uh, <laughs> a, record, a reading of, um, I want to say it's the Bacchae by Euripides oh, yeah, on ayahuasca. Uh, apparently that was a little rough. Uh, as <laughs> as as an experience ending with choral dismemberment uh, generally would be on ayahuasca, and I I have no idea what would it, what it would be like when the artwork is specifically intended to engage that. You don't recommend people taking it before the exhibit, though. Not necessary because the not necessary <laughs> not necessary because the artwork is con- as Skuga says it's contemplative, uh, and it's it's about the experience of a primordial world, and obviously it's probably hopefully nowhere near as intense as an actual ayahuasca trip it's certainly an insertion into that culturally specific mindset and this piece has been sung into existence as well so they sing the designs into the space it's a hell of an endorsement they're singing right now as we speak they're painting it right now now in light of that i just have one question to cap this off what is i I don't want to say what's your favorite piece of the exhibit because that's going to be like who's your favorite child but (laughs) like I've I've heard that comparison to a lot of things, but you know when you, when you create put something in this being, you know it, it's it's been like a question. But what's one piece of this exhibit or one piece of of culture at large you've encountered making this that you think needs to be better known? Something that needs to be in the discourse right now. Cody, how about you answer that question? Would you like to? Yeah, sorry, we've been overlooking it for the past. Oh shoot! Well, there's. Um, but just personally, which one do you? Personally, like? the the story that I found most compelling is there's these Chilean pots. Um, they're not, in and of themselves, they're, like, who made them and why they made them, that's not the important part. It's, um, what's the story? The story is... Do you want me to say Yeah, oh, yeah. so um, it, they're from the Chilean diaspora here in Vancouver. They're people who fled Chile at the time of the Pinochet regime. Oh, And yeah. they brought these ceramics with them as memories of a Chile that they'd lost, a socialist Chile that was conscious of their rural communities that made these very simple pots. And so... Uh, and, and so there'll be a sound element in the exhibition telling people that because the, the, the pots themselves don't tell the story. But I think that's what's really interesting because when we think about the past, we think about appropriating objects and ideas and designs uh, and, 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 and even conserving objects in museums. We imagine that everything ha- is, a, is an object of knowledge, is a place of knowledge which is, never changes, when in fact 
that's utterly untrue and that every single object art story version of history that we listen to or we engage with is only only exists in terms of our interpretation of it and that's what these pots do they sort of open up the scope for, for imagination for intangibles that are part of the story yeah now that's that's well it's an amazing sentiment now, just to, just to recap for our audience, where and when can we catch this? When's the exhibit running till? Right, so please come tomorrow at 6 p.m. Be free. Anyone who wants to come to the exhibition opening uh, can come along to the Museum of Anthropology. It will be open till 10 o'clock at night. There will be some remarks, uh, but more importantly, there'll be some singing on the part of these two uh, Shibibo-Kanibo women from the Amazon rainforest uh, live, which will be beautiful. And there's also a... Uh, Colombian-led band called Breaking Boundaries, John Gonzalez and his friends, who are going to be playing, roaming around the museum, playing Latino music, and there'll be drink and merriment. Uh, and otherwise, they can come anytime before October the 9th. Mexican wine? Oh, God. Um, <laughs> God, <laughs> no. why did I say that? Not in, I know, I'm sure Mexican wine is delicious. Um, I, I just wanted an excuse to play Mexican wine by Fountains of Wine. <laughs> uh, I, I, I am actually wondering about that. I know they make a guardiente, which is, uh, that's a headache in a bottle right there. Well, they make tequila and they make mezcal, which is very delicious. Well, half of Jose Quierbo is a guardiente. It's aguardiente. What aguardiente is made from sugar? Yeah, they okay. use it to adulterate the tequila. Oh, like cheap oh, tequila is oh, I see what it you only mean. legally has to be fifty-one percent tequila. Oh, wow. So Kiervo, Sousa, anything that doesn't say one hundred percent blue agave, they use uh, blanco wow. aguardiente wow. to adulterate it, and then they add caramel for the the gold color. Cheap whiskey is made the same way. Well, so it's a good thing that we we always buy decent tequila and mezcal. <laughs> that we um. <Yes>. fine stuff. <laughs> what a note to go out on. So yeah, <laughs> for our listeners, though this this sounds amazing. Head down to Moa tomorrow is free, and uh, yeah, it sounds amazing. I don't think I can get any more to that. Now uh, this is the arts. This but is still the arts report. I'm still Jake Clark, and uh, we shall return to you after these messages with an interview with Felicia Wu. Um, it was great to ha- guys, it was great to have you. Thank, Thank you, you very much, Thank Jake. You. Cheers. High school is not free in Kenya, East Africa. As well as tuition fees, families must find money for uniforms, including shoes, textbooks, calculators, dictionaries, pens, pencils, and more. For poor rural families earning the equivalent of 2 to $3 a day, this is often an impossible challenge. Will you help educate bright, very poor Kenyan youth to help them find a road out of poverty for their families? Just $50 a month will allow that to happen. Gifts of smaller amounts can be combined to give youth a chance through Key EEF, the Kenya Education Endowment Fund, a registered, BC-based, volunteer-run educational charity. Tax-deductible receipts are available. Donations make great gifts for Christmas, graduation, anniversaries, promotions, etc. Gift cards are available. More information at www.kenyaeducation.org or you can call us at 604-415-9397, day or evening. Without the help and support of our friends, we here at CITR wouldn't be able to bring you all the great music, art, cinema, and culture that you love. Thanks to the long-standing support from the Rio Theatre, we are able to keep you informed on all the great artists, films, and everything else coming to town there. For all the current information about who and what's playing at the Rio Theatre, visit their website at www.riotheatre.ca. ragtime piano on that Rio, Rio Theater theme there. That's just, I've always really liked ragtime since I watched The Sting. 
You ever see the sting? Anyone here? No. I have no idea what you're saying. <laughs> now, for, for those who were not in studio with me, uh, while the microphones were completely off, I've been joined by two more, well, one of our lovely correspondents and a lovely guest. Well, y'all know Ileana. Hey! And uh, our guest is Felicia Wu of A Midsummer Night Stream, which is a ballet. Yeah. Yep. Uh, put on by Coastal Theater Dance Company. Yeah. Yep. Good. Good. I knew that. <laughs> that was in the press release. I don't know. I'm trying to be rhetorical. Um, now, it's interesting to me because Midsummer Night's Dream is an uh, is an iconic play. Yes. It's been put into a lot of different forms. Yeah. How, did you were you familiar with it before the ballet, or is this your sort of your first experience with it? Um. In high school, we did learn a lot about Midsummer, and we studied it in school. Um, other than that, this is pretty much my first main experience with it. And is this, um, shall we say, what, uh, well, actually, this might be a better way to, to start it. What's the biggest change between the text and the performance to you? What's something that really sticks out as characteristic? Um, well, the story is mainly the same. The main thing for me is the music. Um, by Felix Mendelssohn. It's really beautiful music, and it really makes a difference between the play and the ballet. And what role are you playing specifically? Um, I'll be dancing as a fairy. Ah. Oh. What, one, what, are they named, like, Cobweb, Mustard Seed, the, uh, the I remember, they're, they're, uh, the they're one of Titania's yes. fairies, right? Um, we don't have specific names, but they're basically the same parts, yeah. And for... Um, for the the choreography of it, is that supposed to be very like sort of? I I, I don't know a lot about ballet. I, I will let you <laughs> yeah. I, just a, a, I will let you in on a little secret there, but it's got it has many sort of very interesting characters. And I'm wondering yeah. how sort of the style of choreography changes between like the peasant characters, the Greek kings, and the fairies. Like what's how is that conveyed? Um, well, we have our our choreographer is from Germany. Her name is Irene Schneider. Um, her choreography really shows the difference between the characters, and it's mostly portrayed by the way we dance, but also there's a lot of acting in the ballet, so, yeah, each dancer can kind of, um, portray their character however they see it. Now, you've trained in Amster in, in Amsterdam. Did that yes. at all prepare you for working with, because... The Dutch and the Germans, you know, not, not <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't say identical, but it's certainly a sort of continental variety of learning. Did that prepare you for this, this, this style of production at all? Um, well, last summer I was training in Amsterdam. That was mostly um, classes and training. Um, working with Irene from Germany is different as she's a choreographer, but we've also worked with her in the past, so that definitely helped, yeah. Fair enough. And according to according to your bio, you've also worked at the Miami City Ballet and Rock School Summer Intensives. Can you mm -hmm. tell us a little about that? What's sort of been the journey of being a ballerina? Um, so part of um, our ballet training is attending summer programs at different schools around the world. It really helps get um, you give you the opportunity to learn from different teachers and dancing with people from all over the world. Um, yeah. Okay, interesting. Like it's, so you were doing this while you were in school? How, how was that? Yeah, so I was in high school, and these programs were mostly in the summer. Um, while I was in school, I trained with the half-day program at Pacific Dance, Arts, Pacific Dance Arts, which is the school of um, Coastal City Ballet that I'm in now. That was a half-day every day? Yeah, so I went to school in the mornings and then danced in the afternoons and at night. 
how did that sort of affect the high school experience for you? Um, well, I did go to normal high school for the first few years. And then when I changed, it was pretty different because I couldn't spend too much time at school and like make friends. But when I was at school, I was really focused on my schoolwork. So fair enough. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> did you have separate groups of friends like in ballet school in normal school? Yes, for sure. Um, not as many in normal school as like I wasn't able to spend as much time with them but yeah definitely separate sort of like having an alter ego kind of yeah <laughs> <laughs> that'd be something that that would be that that would be interesting actually a, a ballet themes a ballerina superhero <laughs> someone's got to be working on that I'd watch it that's <laughs> you know that's it could be part of the the dance cinematic universe <laughs> maybe, maybe we get you get the Chema Lambo guys Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, that sounded like uh, our dance correspondent, Lua, is currently in Brazil. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I, I think uh, we've we've had some interesting dance-related content. And Vancouver has a lot of, as I have been informed recently, sort of a very interesting dance scene. As yeah. a ballerina, do you say you're in that? Or would you be closer to the classical music sort of chamber uh, thing? Opera, um, or opera discipline, come to think of it. I'm not too familiar with opera. Um, it's, I'm interested in all art forms. I mean, um, I'm more into the ballet and dance areas right now, but I, I do really like music and, yeah. Are you interested in other forms of dance aside from ballet? Yes, um, I really am starting to get into more contemporary work, which I wasn't too familiar with before, but I'm starting to like it a lot more. Like what specifically? Um, <laughs> there are a bunch of different contemporary choreographers, and they all um, have different types of work. And this year, we've also gone to work with some as they've come into our company. And it's just really cool to have different kinds of movement. Is there a particular dance style or musical style for which you feel an affinity? Is there anything you'd really like to work in? Um, I still really like classical music, but I feel like if there's something that speaks to me, I I can really connect with it too. What's your dream part? <laughs> That's a really hard question. <laughs> um, Swan Lake, I, I, I don't know. I don't. I I did perform Swan Lake with Coastal City Ballet uh, two years ago, and that was one of my favorite parts for sure. It's lovely. I, I've never seen the ballet, but I've, I've listened to the music. I, yeah. I, I, I love Tchaikovsky, so it's, it strikes me as being a very dynamic performance. It is, yeah. And then that's – well, I've also seen Black Swan, so <laughs> – <Yeah. laughs> Yeah, yeah, that, that, that put a damper on things. <laughs> that was a dark thing to bring up. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, all right. That's, that's inter- and how long have you been working with Coastal City Ballet? Um, I've been working with them, I think this is my fourth year. Um, this is my first year really in the company. So before when I was part of the school, I was mostly just filling in for them when they needed more people. Um, but now I'm. this is my first year with the company. Yeah. Like an ensemble part? Yes. Fair enough. Seems good. And... With this, do you, do you intend to sort of pursue ballet to the extent of maybe choreography or or to starring in the ballet? Like, what what is your sort of aim with this? Because you've got a yeah. lot, a lot of time ahead of you. Yes. Um, 
Well, right now I'm still hoping to pursue a career as a professional dancer. Um, after that, I am not sure yet. Choreography might be something that I'm interested in, but I haven't had enough contact with it to know right now. Well, it's a learning experience, right? Yes. And if we want to catch a Midsummer Night's Dream anytime soon, if we want to see you in the fairy costume, if you want to see, <laughs> I, I, re I really want to see the bottom character. Like, that'd be interesting to see the guy with the donkey head. Yeah, that's doing the you know the the, the when the, the the jump. What is that for? Is it just a jump? Um, maybe a jeté. A jeté. Like I want to see a guy with a donkey head doing a very elegant leap. <laughs> That would be fantastic. Yeah. That would be fun. Where could we hypothetically see that and when? Um, well, this Saturday we'll be performing at the Vancouver Playhouse at 8 p.m. And then if you can't make it, we, we're also performing it on June 8th at the Surrey Arts Centre. All right. Very well. So there you go. Ballet enthusiast, Shakespeare enthusiast, donkey head shenanigans enthusiast. <laughs> that sounds bad. That that really, oh, oh, thank God I didn't make that joke in the earlier segment. Okay, that, yeah. you can check out Midsummer Night's Dream. Felicia, it was great to have you in the studio. Uh, we'll be back uh, with an, uh, our correspondent Ileana's review of Wet, which uh, is seems pretty intense. It's a doozy. <laughs> and, uh, and my review of Tolkien. Uh, Pacific Theater, which was uh, a little more sedate. Um, <laughs> all right. Felicia, good to have you. Thanks for having me. Cheers. You know what's better than reading a great magazine? Reading a great magazine that also helps you fight poverty. Megaphone Magazine is sold by homeless and low-income vendors on the streets of Vancouver and Victoria. Vendors buy magazines for 75 cents and sell them for $2. It's flexible, low barrier work for people who may not have access to traditional jobs. Download the Megaphone app to find vendors and buy the magazine, even when you don't have change. The microphone. The microphone is on. of CITR and Discorder, but are you a true friend? Get a Friends of CITR and Discorder card for $20 for discounts on Main Street at Anti-Social Skateboard Shop, Biltmore Cabaret, Red Cat Records, Lucky Comics, The Wallflower Modern Diner, Neptune Records, The Rag Machine, The Regional Assembly of Text, and so many more. I can't tell if you're laughing because that was such an awkward thing to miss or or you're just laughing because it was funny. Can I do both? <laughs> no, there's only one laugh. You ever you ever seen a face in the crowd? It's a great movie. It's a great movie. Andy Griffith. <laughs> Andy, Andy Griffith was a very underappreciated actor and I'm doing extended homage to him. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm serious. He was he was he was a really good. He was a really good actor. So, um yeah, wet. Okay, weird sequence of words. Uh, well, this, I went to go see it last night um, at the Russian Hall. Uh, it was really intense. Uh, they have a lot of kind of trigger warnings or like um, 
suggestions of like this is gonna probably happen like get ready for and stuff like that but it's like it was it was definitely something i don't think i was mentally prepared for and it very much shocked me um it was really really good though what was it about let's let's start with yeah yeah um so what is about our main character burns who's played by geneva um Genevieve Fleming. Uh, She is coming back from the Afghanistan war um, and she's like semi-comatose. She's she's there, but she's not, she doesn't seem like she's very connected with her her own body, kind of been able to speak or anything like that. So it details kind of like in the beginning you get to see her like as a soldier and then the second part of it is seeing her back home and kind of the challenges she, she now faces and her husband, uh, who we kind of only really know as Sweetie, and he's played by Matthew McDonald Bain. Um, and so you get to see, yeah. Sorry, Sweetie, yeah, continue. Yeah, so she, he, they also go through their own thing. They're both, uh, trying to get money from the government which is not giving them any money and get, getting money uh for like a like a, so, a health benefit because she's basically just can't do anything um and also like uh another huge factor is uh one of burns's um other friend soldier whose name is tom who's played by Pranit Akila um is also like a huge factor and come like yeah it's just a lot of stuff going on it deals with really serious issues with ptsd i imagine and with uh... yeah and and sexual assault and like attempted rape oh yeah there's well there's a military problem with that yeah so it's it it was definitely really hard to see and the way and it makes it the way that they like set it up to watch it was more made the whole thing more personal because you're not watching this from like a stage you go like downstairs in the russian hall theater and you're like down there and it's kind of like you're in the set of like a movie even where you're just like surrounded by all the uh like uh props and the whole like you're in it and the so you're like have the like square room and then on each side are a line of chairs and you sit down and you're just like the actors are coming into the middle of it and you are like super close to them like super super scary close to them and it was such a very cool experience but it's also like you're sitting there and you're watching this happen and you're like I could get up right now and I could like help but another part of you is like this is wearing with you where it's like no 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 they're like they're actors they're doing their thing but it's like that minute instinct where you're just like I, I want to help I can do better so okay that's and is is that intentional do they engage the audience a lot is there sort of leaning on the fourth wall uh no it I don't think it's I don't think they did it for like fourth wall I think it was just like I think that's what it made it more like 
personal and I think they really wanted to kind of make sure that like these stories that are being told often that I think like we see on the news but we don't understand too well or we're because we are not there ourselves being being able to be that close and personal with like the story and the actors themselves I think hits hits the issues happening harder and I think it made us more empathetic to what's happening and like maybe what we could do Hmm. and there's because that that's interesting to me because there's a whole lot of well there's a lot of issues with post-traumatic stress and with service and the the plain fact of it is that it's very difficult like I'm a civilian I've never served and I really don't intend to and I, I can't imagine what it's got to be like just inside your head if you've seen and done what you have to do as an as a active serviceman. And I have to imagine that because of that, there's a cultural disconnect. Yeah, and also, like, I'm American, and so I was very interested into knowing kind of how Canadians uh, kind of thought and their, the struggles they faced uh with the Afghanistan war after everything. And so it was also like a huge. Well, when the Brits get involved, we get involved. That's the card. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember Passchendaele? Uh, 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 yeah, yeah. A lot of, a lot of the Canadian involvement in land war was based on the principle that we got sent in when the Scottish, then when there weren't enough Scots to soak up the bullets, that was the, what happened in Passchendaele when you had a whole lot of Canadians dying in the mud. That's also what happened another war later at Dieppe where they sent in Canadian soldiers in both when they landed in Dieppe. And then that, I think it was, was it Mountbatten? Was he the guy the IRA blew up? Blew up? I, I, I don't, it, it was because the, these were lords. These mm-hmm. were men who had had a heredit, who were given a hereditary position in the military and essentially sent in scores of the Canadian division and in the first world and well actually both wars would have been the Newfoundlanders as well because they they were separate but either way (laughs) send in the colonials you got the Australian the Australians had Gallipoli we had Passchendaele and Vimy Ridge Vimy Ridge was like a, a bottleneck full of machine guns and we ran the gamut but in Passchendaele it was Canadians just dying in the mud. It was Passchendaele factors into Tolkien a little bit, actually, come to think of it. As to some of the cast, because McDonald Bain was in Pacific Theater's um, um, Love Sick. That's oh, yeah. maybe a tasteless connection. <laughs> but to answer yeah. your question about Canadian military involvement, yeah, we got it. Yeah, it was, I felt like there were some differences, maybe. How so? I think... One of them was that uh, that kind of how I th- I just didn't feel like a lot of people a lot of the cast themselves are like super patriotic. Is that was that on account of the material or on account of the presentation? Maybe on the count of like because like because like in the setting I would if I was like an American kind of military I would. Uh, personnel or maybe I'm just being like stereotyping on it but it's to me like hearing about the military was like it was like very patriotic like you wanted everyone to know that you knew someone who was in the military or had like a 
like it was like a very high respecting position I felt like in America and it was like seen as like a huge job but in this it sometimes it did but I don't feel like the whole like the nation kind of building up or anything like that was there like the huge like undevotion love for the nation for what it does or I think well yeah that may be a difference with that I think in um maybe not because there's still prestige coming from service because you do especially in volunteer armies but I think in Canada at least because I was in cadets very briefly and what my the impression that I got there especially when they introduced like people who were like professional military people Mm -hmm. like people who had who were were full-time officers like on base but still like the impression I got of it was that they're like it's a career it's a job you do and in a lot of the cases like with them who had gone to Royal Military College for it, it was like it was a charter. It was it was a charter job because they they were commissioned officers, so they had, they were basically, you know, they're basically very skilled white collar workers. Like the um, mm-hmm. the the uh, um, like people duty officers. Like it's probably one of the only white collar jobs in the world where you need to make the judgment calls. Um, in an array of diverse situations, actually in in process, because if if you were an active duty officer, I'll say that because a lot of the time too, duty suspended because we don't. War's been constant for a long time, but it's also a war that's never really reached us. And then there's the whole issue of that I don't even want to get into, but that's part of it too. The divide between the military and civilian worlds is getting a lot bigger because. Most people, it's an option to serve, and you don't have to. You don't have to. You don't, you're not going to have the fear of getting drafted. Yeah, that's true. But I, in the play, though, they do kind of discuss that, like, or at least kind of I feel like they touch on the subject of how, like, um, people who are, who are like, trying to get people to join the military usually go after, like, lower-class individuals. Yeah, to, to, yeah. To, to buy your way, to get out. To get out and yep. how that that sort of like people who don't have the kind of money to not do that and try to think that that is a way out like joining the military and getting the money afterwards is a way out they it's like sh- sh- kind of shows that gi bill too yeah it's not a way out like they'll it'll present itself as a way out but in actuality it's still going to like sink you so, wet at the Russian Hall. Yeah, it's it's intense. it's really intense. Um really intense play. I would de- definitely recommend it because it is super super good, but I like you have to be mentally prepared. Like if you're not, it's everything's just going to be like really hard and it's going to not like it's going to like haunt you. I will say this puts my Perspective on Tol- my thoughts on Tolkien in a bit of perspective. Uh, so Tolkien is about when I heard about Tolkien, like there's, I was stoked for. It. I was immediate because I am a huge Tolkien fan. Like is yeah because we're part of a generation where the Lord of the Rings movies are like there th- that was proliferated to people and they're still great films. And Lord of the Rings has been around for a half century before that. Yeah, and there was a cultural place for it. And like I, so I, and I've read the Lord of the Rings. I've read the Hobbit at least ten times, 
because I used to read it every year. And Tolkien is a story about J.R.R. Tolkien's friendship with C.S. Lewis because they're members of the Inklings at Oxford, which yeah. they called themselves. Now, this is kind of funny because Lewis was an atheist before he met Tolkien. Tolkien, a devout Roman Catholic, convinced him to turn to religion. Lewis turned to the Church of England. Now, that is what this is about, <laughs> uh, more or less, because this is specific, right? Yeah. So there's an element of religion in the programming, and that's fine. I like that. I think it's, and this is a very interesting dynamic because Lewis was enamored of Charles Williams, who is also a Church of England member, he's a character in this, who is, uh, well, among other things, very fond of the concept of free love. Tolkien, again, devout Roman Catholic, a little shifty on that. <laughs> uh, now, Tolkien, however, on the other side, was a friend of Roy Campbell, who was a poet and satirist who was uh, kind, of a, kind of a cheerleader for Franco, the Spanish Civil War. Oh. Not for Hitler. He he, okay. he he had the good sense not to do that. Like Tolkien, he was South African. Like Tolkien, he was Catholic. Um, I don't really want to dwell on this too long because of that. It seems so petty in comparison. But uh, all the problems in this play, and this is, I think, of the Pacific features I've seen this year, this is the one that had the most problems, which is unfortunate. But this is the the way the problems can be summarized. Ron Reed playing John Ronald is reading from a script. The main actor playing Tolkien when I saw this was not there. So Ron Reed, the player and director stepped in reading from a script. And this is interesting. This is a this is a, a, a 160 minute play with two intermissions. That's a bold move. It is a bold move. And I give him credit cuz he does do Tolkien justice in character. Like I do buy him as Tolkien, but it takes you out of the play. And this is a dialogue heavy play. So you can't help but notice that. But one thing I could notice was that Especially in the scenes where he... So uh, Simon Webb plays both Campbell and Dyson. And it's interesting to see him play the two characters. And it's also... in. And I want to make this comparison because Dyson and Campbell show up in points very specifically. Those two people were maybe... They were less related to Tolkien and Lewis, but they were very related to Tolkien. Mm -hmm. And how he went through those years between in the 30s and the Second World War, which is when this primarily takes place. Now, Tolkien had... A how best to put this? The 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 thing about it is that you can I can see when the moments that are the really important to him because he knows them. He looks up from the script and he acts them a little more because he can. And I don't blame him for this. This is an unavoidable problem, but it was a hard sit because of that. And I do want to say this. If you're interested in J.R.R. Tolkien, if you're interested in C.S. Lewis, this has a lot. This is going to be very rewarding to watch if you know a lot about them. It does point out that Lewis was not as good at thinking through his concepts that Tolkien was by a long shot. I, I think Lewis was a less good writer. I think the screw tape letters is the best thing he ever wrote, and that's a good work of satire. <laughs> yeah, I, I am kind of rushing through this, but really, uh, it, it's it's worth seeing if you're interested in that. If you're not, it will bore you. To t it, it, you just won't be able it, – it will be – no, it's not going to engage you. And that's a sad thing to say. That's a sad thing to say. I was really looking forward to this, but such is the case. Uh, all right. Um, this has been the Arts Report on CITR 11.9 FM. I'm your host, Jake Clark. I'm Ileana Sosa. And uh, cheers. And the microphone will be off this time.